Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Uh, Welcome again to Hope Beyond the Badge. My name is Jay Bailey. I'm Linda Kokoris. Today we have guest speaker David Betts and his wife Janice. David and Janice, welcome and thank you very much for coming on Hope Beyond the Badge. Thank you. Thank you. Dave and Janice are here today to share with us a sad and tragic story that happened in their lives and somehow finding ways to help others through it. Uh, Dave, Janice, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourselves? Uh, where do you live, family, all that stuff? Sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jay. Thank you, Linda, uh, for having us both um, here today. We're, we're honored to you know, be present to have been asked to share our story with you on your podcast. So we live, uh, right now, we live in Peabody, Massachusetts. Um, prior to that, we lived in Lynn, Mass for the you know, the bulk of our lives together. Um, I've been a Chelsea police officer now for coming up on 35 years uh, between Chelsea, Arlington, Mass, and my prior service as a dispatcher back at Harvard University from 1987. Uh, I met my wife back in 1989. We first met. Um, we got married a few years later, and we're fortunate enough to have three kids, three lovely kids. Uh, our son, David, our daughter, Kayla, and our youngest son, Cameron. And, you know, we pretty much raised our kids um, in Lynn. And unfortunately, in 2017, we lost our oldest son, David, at age 24 to a suicide. And this is how we became involved in the mission to help other people in their struggles for mental health and suicide. And also as a second calling, if you will, for myself and law enforcement to have the stigma lessened from what I've seen in my whole career. It's something that's not talked about in the first responder service as a whole, as well as uh, not being recognized, um, you know, by the powers that be to have it um, recognized as a job-related disability. Thank you, David. Um, You said you lost your son. Sorry to to hear that. Um, That must have been hard for both of you. Um, to go experience this yourselves, especially in the police department, you as a a captain um, in Chelsea. Have you experienced this before, before you lost your son? Like, what was that like before? And we'll talk about David. Sure. Um, So did I experience suicide in this police service? Mental health, yeah. Mental health, yeah. I mean, in my career, I think, you know, when you reflect back after 35-some-odd years and you're 
you get older, um, I can remember being back when I was, you know, um, you know, a young cop at 19, um, you know, going out in the street at, at 20, you know, seeing my first death by suicide. Um, and it's not something that they ever really talked about in the academy. There's no hands-on instruction for it. There's no rule book. And there's no, you know, there's no guide for you to, um, to go by after the call. You just go to the call and you listen to the other people that you're with. And you go through, uh, I guess, the rule book or the policies for how to handle something like that. But there's no policy for you to be able to handle it, you know, mentally. Um, no policy for you to be able to uh, have a guideline afterwards how you're going to feel, how you're going to act. It's just um, you go to the call, you handle the call, and then you wait for the next call to come in, and then you handle that next call like you handled the prior call of, of a suicide or a mental health call. You just reflect back on your training. But the only training you really had was, you know, what you saw. But the aftermath doesn't... The aftermath doesn't give you the, the skill set to be able to deal with it uh, mentally because as you know, human beings, this is something that we're not really um, taught how to do or um, taught how to heal from. So from, you know, from my standpoint as a cop, for so long seeing it out in the street you know, as regularly as I did and thinking back to other law enforcement personnel that have taken their lives, um, you know, throughout the years, it was something that was always um, unspoken. You know, police officers would um, have taken their own lives, and it was talked about by, you know, they, they died by while cleaning their service revolver, which at the time, thinking back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was um, probably something that was done to you know, help alleviate the family concern maybe where they were um, they were looked upon as taking their lives accidentally. Um, mm. But who else would be more proficient uh, in firearms training, um, you know, other than military than police officers to be able to, you know, to clean their weapons. Yeah. So while I think they were doing a service to the family, mm. I think it was a disservice to the profession to get it recognized, um, you know, for the job-related um, struggles that we all face. Yeah, sort of trying to like make the family feel a little bit better about the loss of a loved one. Yeah, maybe trying to make them feel better or feel them, a, maybe make them um, a bit more whole by maybe, you know, maybe having certain benefits afforded to them, whether it was through life insurance policies that wouldn't have been honored if it was a suicide death, um, you know, if it was written up as you know, a job related accident. Uh, they would have been afforded maybe some other benefits, but it also did a disservice to, I think, to the profession as a whole because it wasn't recognized as something we see every day that's not normal. Mm. You know, even if you're a fireman, policeman, EMS, um, you know, seeing death is not, it's not normal. You know, it's not a normal part of anybody's job, um, but it's something that we do every day, you yeah. know, uh, in police and fire. EMS personnel, um, you know, we see death before hospital physicians, you know, and hospital physicians, not to take anything away from what they do or, you know, nursing staff or whatever, they all do a great service and, you know, we can't do what we do without them. They see what we see after, you know, we're, we're to the scene first, you yeah. know, and you, you can't unsee, um, 
ABC, you can't unsee the post-trauma um, of you know the family's reactions or the grief and the cumulative stress and grief and mental health that we sustain over a 25 or a 30-year career is, you know, it's insurmountable. And mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no mental tools that you can get for that. You can have the best tools or the best equipment that money can buy, but there's no mental Kevlar to wrap around your head. There's nothing to deflect, you know, what you see. Yeah. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. So you deal with that on a day-to-day basis. Year after year, year after. you pick up something in every call, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it be a suicide or a mental health call, you pick up something, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Can I get in and talk about your son, David? Yes. Um, you lost your son in 2017. Yes. Um, tell us a bit about him. Janice wants to join in too, she can. Sure. David, um, you know, David is, is larger than life, and I always refer to him when I can as in the present because he's still, you know, ever present in our minds and in our hearts and for that vision or that, you know, um, positivity to go away. It's just something that, you know, I think would do us a disservice in furthering his unfulfilled mission, um, you know, to prevent, you know, somebody else's death. Um, So he was born May 18th, 1992 came at a time in, you know, in my life in particular where um, there was a void um, as far as, you know, who I thought I may have been as a person or as a guy or as a cop or whatever. It totally changed when he was born. He changed my life for the better. Um, and of course, you know, if it hadn't have been for my wife, he wouldn't have come along. And, you know, he grew to be larger than life. You know, he was a big kid, big muscular kid. Uh, he would tell you that he was stronger than a house he could lift the house, um, <laughs> but I would always tell him that it doesn't matter how strong you are, you, you know, you're not going to outrun a radio and you can't fight your way out of a paper bag. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> um, that was Dave. Um, and he was uh, a, a total gentleman, you know, even though, you know, he would have his times as any one of us would, you know, growing up. Uh, he was, uh, my wife would say, um, a house devil and a street angel. Um, but he was a great kid, and he, his memory remains a, a great kid, and I'm not saying that just because he was my son. You could see that in, you know, the memorials that was, were, were brought forth for him you know, after his death by people who only knew him for a short amount of time to come out in, in you know, the numbers that they did you know, recognizing who he was, that's not something that you can really, you could teach all you want to try to teach, and you can try to, you know, have your, you know, you can try to be the kind of dad that you would want your son to emulate, but generally, they're going to act how they want to act, and he always acted accordingly when he was outside, Um, and he, you know, he personified that image of of respect um, that proud to know that he was our son Um, and for him to have you know passed in such a way that he did was you know obviously a a shock and a tragedy for us to you know to be a part of Uh, but I also know that in his passing his memory for the type of person he was 
you know, serve others to hopefully think twice before they, you know, ultimately choose to, you know, to take their life or are contemplating taking their life that there's, you know, there's other people and other resources out there that, that care for them. Yeah. So it's been six years, seven years? Six. Yeah, it's been six, six years. February was uh, six years. You know, and on, you know, I can you know, vividly remember the day he passed and, yeah. you know, the circumstances that, you know, that led up to it um, or the lack of circumstances that we could see, I should say, um, that led up to it because um, there were no signs. Um, and I say that from a standpoint of, you know, being his dad and, you know, being in law enforcement for so long, you think you know people and you think you're trained to know people or read people or see the signs of, of people that are, you know, contemplating suicide um, and to listen for certain words where if you were to hear something, um, you know, as, as, a, as a cop or as a firefighter or EMS or a physician, if somebody were to say something to you that you thought was off key or off color, you know, as, as first responders were trained, you know, if for nothing else to you know, to pass the buck. If somebody says something that troubles you, you're going to send them off to some place that you think they're going to get the help that they need. Yeah. Um, we, we never saw that. We never saw it as a cop, never saw it as a dad, which is, you know, double trouble, as I call it now. Um, because I thought I should have been trained to see it. But there wasn't. There wasn't one um, indication that he was off. You know, he lived at home. He was a great-looking kid. He out regularly so you know his physical health and his outward appearance was you know of, of you know rock star status yeah but his inner health and his inner you know mental well-being were troubled to the point that you know it, it cost cost him his life um, and we didn't know it you know he religiously did three things. He came home. He went to the work. He went to work. He had a great work ethic, you know, for such a young kid. Um, cared about his job. Cared about his appearance. His appearance commanded respect, uh, and he went to the gym. And those three places were, you know, generally the places he would go if he was going to stay out all night or he was going to be in one particular place for a extended period of time. He would he would text. Or he would call. You know, even if it was three o'clock in the morning, he would call or uh, text me. Hey, Dad, I'm going to be with my, you know, quote-unquote friend mm -hmm. overnight. Okay, you know, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Um, but that's what he did. You know, so on the morning that he died, um, you know, to, to find out the way I found out was, you know, obviously unscripted. But the one promise that, you know, I made to my kids as well as probably every other parent in the world makes to their kids, um, you know, if, if you need me, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll find you. Just call me. I'll, I'll find you. Don't call me if you're in jail. Yeah. But if you need something, I'll, I'll be there. Um, so he knew that. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, I got a phone call uh, from my work saying that they got a call from my son's work that he wasn't in work. I, you know, I instantaneously knew there was a problem, but I didn't think it rose to that level initially. Yeah. Um, but he was a pretty well-known kid. You know, he had the same name as me. Um, I, I, you know, thought I was a pretty well-known name around police circles for being in there so long. 
Um, and by today's standards, everybody has some form of communication or everybody knows somebody through social media or whatever it is. Um, I knew we probably wasn't in the hospital because I would have got a phone call. Um, I knew he probably wasn't out overnight with a friend because I would have got a text um, unless, you know, he was having a really good time with a friend or two friends and I didn't know about it. Um, so he wasn't at home. He wasn't at work. I went into his room to double check things. wasn't in his room. And I instantaneously went into that, you know, that cop mode where you're just, okay, I'm, a, I'm in, I'm a cop now. I'm going to my training. I'm reverting to my training right now. So yeah. I literally got dressed um, and ran out of the house with a jacket uh, and got in my car. Just started driving. I didn't even know where I was going. Had no indication, clue, or direction where I was going. Consciously, subconsciously, mm -hmm. I knew where I was going. And I was starting to call a bunch of different people that I knew. Said, hey, listen, I said, I can't get a hold of my son. Got a really bad feeling about this, not liking it at all. Um, called a couple of guys in the state police I knew to say, I can't get a hold of him. Is there a way we can, can we track his phone? Can we ping his phone? It, it's called, you know, try to get a certain location and as I'm doing that I'm trying to get on the iPhone app you know find my iPhone yeah um, to see if I can find out where he is and I'm on it I'm going through it and I try to log on to it and I couldn't I couldn't log on to it because he had changed his password so then I tried to reset his password and the only way you can reset the password is the answer the secret questions yeah so I went into the secret questions and you know the questions were you know what street did you grow up on well he lived in one house his whole life answered it next question what was the first car you owned I bought it so I knew what it was yeah answered it third question what was the first concert you went to I said all right I got this now I got this you know it's um it was uh Hanson boy band Hanson so I type in Hanson and apparently it you know you, you can't have the boy band Hanson as your third question when you're 24 because it's not cool so he, he had changed <laughs> it you know mm -hmm. didn't know he changed it so I wasn't able to get it and I ended up kept you know I was driving and I ended up you know ultimately driving to to the gym um and that's where he was at the gym at, in the gym parking lot right in his car and that's where I found him. Wow. And he had, you know, taken his life. So after I found him in the car, um, I obviously, you know, rallied. I, I had called a bunch of people on the way and everything. And, um, told them I had found him, and they kind of rallied everybody up. And, you know, they sending the cavalry from all over. Um, and unbeknownst to me that day, there was another incident in puberty. Um, I think there was a homicide or a double homicide. So there was a helicopter flying overhead. The police firing EMS show up. A bunch of state police show up. Um, and now I'm I'm standing in the parking lot next to my son in the car when the first you know PBD police officer shows up. Um, you know, and this guy shows up. He has no clue what's going on. Mm -hmm. He just sees you know what I see. And um, you know, I tell him. So I can't even venture to say what his reaction was, you know, or what, what's going through his mind. I do know he showed up at the 
you know, at the wake and the funeral, you know, for him. Um, I remember my son had, you know, he had his his phone. I took his phone right off his lap because I knew that, you know, that's, you know, maybe a part of the investigation that somebody would look at. Yeah. But I also knew I needed to have that phone for me first yeah. to look. Um, and I did. There was nothing on there at all. Nothing dark, no indication of, of anything. You know, and now, as I'm standing there with my son, who I had made the promise to, you know, if you need me, I'll find you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one part of this that, you know, makes a little sense to me uh, is that, you know, he could have went anywhere. Yeah. But he went to a place where he knew I'd find him. First, first, you found him. I found him, um, which for me personally is something that, that I needed to have happen you yes. know, rather than having another guy on our job who does it 24 7, who's not, who's become, you know, hardened or calloused over the years, like we all have. Uh, I needed to find him. Um, and in the 35 years of doing this now, um, I think, you know, the amount of death notifications that I've made over the years is probably three or four. Um, and, the, and now one of them is, you know, to my family. So between getting the call, the 911 call, if you will, that your son's missing, responding to the scene of where your son is, finding your son and then making the death notification to your family. Um, I hope that I am fortunate enough to be one of the only ones in this profession to have to have done all that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now in the aftermath of his passing, um, you know, through, th- through him, um, you know, I was able to, you know, stay on the job and, take what he has not been able to do um, and further it through myself, um, you know, by getting promoted, studying at the graveside with him, um, to be able to be in a position to get promoted, to be high enough in the chain of command to make the push to have a change made uh, in this profession and, and in other professions because there's no way that a cop fireman, EMS dispatcher can go this career whether you're on the month whether you're on the job a month or thirty five years and not have some form of PTS from everything that you see every day, regardless of what it is. Doesn't matter what it is, because nobody is here to say what one person's grief is over another person's grief. Nobody can say how one person's gonna react to a trauma that they see over another person because there was no rule book yeah. in the academy, you know, for yeah. that. And we all come on this job with a clean bill psychologically. Yeah. So anything that happens to us in the aftermath has to be job-related. Yeah. So can I go back to... Um, that That had to be really, really hard to share, Dave. Um, you know, just talking back and reliving, going back to the day of... Um, I can't imagine... Um, you're going through that, actually finding him. But that was sounds like it was something that you made a promise to him 
and and you you were told your promise and that has to be something that yeah you don't want to go through but you feel that's part of your soul that you were meant to find them yeah that's i mean if 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 it sounds that's the one thing that gives me a little bit of solace in the whole in the whole thing you know because i know it wasn't i know it was me and yeah. he knew he, he knew, knew what i would you. do yeah. you know, to find them he knew yeah um and like i said he could have went any number of places to be in a position not to have been found yeah um but he knew his dad would find them yeah so in the aftermath <coughs> of that day, mm-hmm. the process of notifying your family, mm-hmm. your wife, your children, Janice um, is here today also. And uh, I can see, obviously, um, it's emotional still. Um, doesn't go away. No, it Do you want to share with us a little bit about that? Like. You know, the initial processing of shock and trauma and disbelief. Shock is the word. I, um, I didn't, I didn't know anything. I, I didn't feel anything. I was in, sh- and I didn't know I was in shock. Um, as hard as it is for me, being his mom, he was home the night before. He was on the couch. I was in the kitchen. He said, Mom, I'm going to the gym. I said, okay. He said, I have the overnight shift tonight. I said, I know. I'll leave you dinner in the microwave. He said, okay. So when I got up for work, his boots were downstairs, but nothing unusual. I know he's got another set of boots at work. He worked for the mass department, mental health department, police. I can't um, okay. In Boston at the time of his passing. So I didn't think anything. Dave called me. I was at work. And he asked if I heard from David. And I said, no, he's probably on his way home or still at work. And he said, um, hon, he didn't make it to work. So I thought, my God, my son's hurt someplace on the side of the road or he's in a hospital. So we hung up. And he called me back and said, I think you should come home. I didn't know what was going on. I just could hear from his voice something wasn't right, something was wrong. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know what. So I went home, and he wasn't home. And he said he was out trying to find David, and I was confused. And I was just crying because I didn't know what was going on. My mother come over, and my mother wasn't well at the time. Right. So initially you thought your son was missing, right? I thought he's, the worst case, I thought he was hurt or in a hospital someplace. That's what I thought. I never in my life ever imagined to be told what I was told. And I... I wasn't told. I was. I heard my mother scream, an ungodly scream, because he had called the house. And I knew at that point my son was gone just from my mom's scream, but I didn't know anything else. How do you tell your wife that your son took his life? Yeah. I don't think you can. Um, I remember a lot of people... I remember somebody telling me we needed to contact a funeral home, and I didn't understand why. Why do I need a funeral home? Like, I just, it's just shock. So we found a grief therapist. Pretty much instantly, maybe three weeks after, maybe, 
Yeah. Like, I I knew I couldn't do this alone. I, I couldn't do it alone. I still can't do it alone. We still have a grief therapist. And we have our support from our families that we've met through our losses. Um, but it's challenging. Grief is very challenging. It's a roller coaster. One minute, you think, all right, you get two steps ahead, two steps forward. You get a, you got a hold on things. You're going to be okay. And the next minute, it's like getting hit with a tsunami and you're digging your way back out of a hole that I don't know if we'll ever fully get out of. Yeah. Um, the effect on the family, when they say that it changes your life, it changes every aspect of your being, not just your life, your children, your, your marriage, yourself. You know, I was told you're no longer the person you were February 16th, 2017. Um, it took me a long time to understand that, but I'm not. I'm not that person. I'm a grieving mother. I will always be a grieving mother. And I will always work to try to prevent somebody from feeling what I feel every day. Yeah. You know, Dave said earlier that when we had David, Dave, David gave him purpose. And he did. And as sad as it is, he's given us a new purpose that I only just now realized hearing him say that he gave me purpose when I was pregnant, when he was born. But that's exactly what he's done twice. So he's continuing to give he's you purpose. He's continuing. And I honestly didn't realize that. You know, you get caught up in your pain and your hurt and your emptiness that you don't, I didn't see that gift, as I'll call it. Yeah. But I remember when we had David and just how much he gave to Dave. And now he's given it to us in a different way, a different way to give back. I mean, David would give you the shirt off his back. He had a friend when he was younger in baseball, and the kid come over, and he's like, Mom, can I give him a pair of sneakers? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah. He, do he doesn't have another pair. He's only got one pair. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Like, that's... That's who he was. Yeah. So, Janice, you said um, earlier on that, you know, you've learned how to, you'll always be a grieving mom. I can understand that and relate with you. We got to meet you, um, myself and my family, um, through First Help, mm -hmm. right? Through Blue Help at the time. And um, just want to share to the listeners that we met you guys um, in Texas. Um, a little bit before that, though, because we, we did a walk in, in Braintree, right? Um, a first responder walk in Braintree, and uh, we got to meet Dave and Janice. We both live in Massachusetts, and um, it was felt good to, for the first time, um, when we did meet each other at that walk, to know that there through horrible circumstances that someone else knew what we were going through. Um, no words pain. need to be said. Yeah, we didn't need to say it. And I remember hugging each other. I remember Dave gave, <laughs> took his shirt off and gave me a T-shirt. Yeah. I had uh, another one, though. That he was wearing. <laughs> and um, he gave me his T-shirt because it was a T-shirt that had um, 
David's stuff on it, David's um, stuff on there, right? And um, but it's true. I can see that you're um, very visibly um, emotional today. That doesn't go away. Um, you just learn to live through it in a different way on a daily basis. And some days are good, some and days some days are, are not horrible. so good. Yeah. yeah, some days are horrible, you just said. And um, your purpose now, like, what is it that you would want to do to help other first responders? Like, in the, again, I said to Dave earlier on, you pick up something every call you go on, regardless how small or big it is, right? What, what do you do? What do you want to do to help others? Let them know they're not alone to be there for somebody else because it is a lonely journey. It's a hard journey. It's work. Surviving, survival is hard with a broken heart. Yeah. But to be there, to walk the walk with somebody so maybe they don't have, they have one less lonely day than I had. Yeah this journey so is to help other parents or the families be able to create awareness what is it that you see yeah create awareness um, acceptance that there is it's not your fault it's not our fault yeah it's yeah. not it's hard because we take responsibility in some aspects I believe we all do but it's not. It's what was in their mind at that moment. And the thing that hurts me the most is that my son died alone. That kills me. Yeah. Um, so for whomever may need a shoulder, may need a hand, may just need an ear to listen, that I can help them. I can be that, or try to be that for them, or we could try to be that for one another. Yeah. That ear, that hand held, mm -hmm. can make so much of a difference. Such a big difference in someone's life that you might never even know beforehand. Yeah. It can make a huge difference in changing a mindset of moving forward. My children, six years out, or six years in, however, to describe it, my son is 25, my daughter is 27. They've been doing it on their own. How, I don't know. I can't, I couldn't. How, how, how would you think that your children, your other two children, how are they processing this six years in, like from the beginning, initial processing it, and then moving forward as a sibling? I mean... You lost your, your, your son. But and they I'm lost sure their brother, uh, yeah. their friend, yeah. their confidant, their yeah. secret keeper, mm -hmm. their protector. Yeah. You lost your That's son. That's not lessening what I lost, but they lost a lot in that one being. Yeah. You know, he was, he was my son. He's my soul. Mm -hmm. He wasn't my secret keeper. He wasn't my friend. Yeah. You know, I always said, I'm your mom. I'm not your friend. Yeah. How are they doing? How are your two kids doing? Struggling. Yeah. Struggling. Struggling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I never realized that I didn't have any siblings. You know, my, my wife had siblings. I didn't have any siblings, so I didn't understand the whole 
you know, sibling rivalry or the sibling code of silence. You know, and that's one of the things that I had found out before Dave died was, you know, he had his he had his license to carry, right? That's kind of like a rite of passage for, you know, a, a, a guy who wants to be a cop. He gets his license to carry. And I had found out shortly thereafter that he had bought a firearm. And I only found out through my daughter who came home and told me. And um, I was ticked off that he did. You know, a little more than ticked off, but I'll, I'll let you think expletive I want to use. No, they can use on here. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes, you okay. Can. I was pissed off. Okay. Um, and I was pissed off because, like, t- as a dad, as a cop, like, that's like a baseball glove. You know, you want, you want to be there when they get their first baseball glove. You thought you'd want to be there yep. when they when they get a gun, especially since he doesn't know anything about him, and especially since I had just paid his car insurance. I went into him and I said, hey, did you buy a gun? And of course, with the, you know, the big bur- burly attitude that he gave me, like, yeah, I did. Yeah, why? How'd you know? How'd you know? Would Kayla tell you? Yeah, yeah. So, of course, now she becomes the snitch and the sibling code rivalry, mm-hmm. and I'm pissed off because I paid his car insurance, <laughs> right? Yeah. But it was what it was. Um, ultimately, that ended up being the weapon, you know, that he used. But, you know, for cops and for firemen, um, you know, we're famous for not talking, right? But what do we do when we need help when we're at work? call for help, right? We don't let guys go in alone. doesn't matter what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mutual aid. We call mutual aid all the time. Firemen, they ring the bell when it's time to get out of the building. If it's coming down, they send in a rapid intervention team. We send in the SWAT team. Yep. But when a guy's having a bad day, right, they tell him to suck it up because, you know, he, he's been at that call before and we don't want to handle him. But we jump in front of a bullet for him or we go into a burning building for him. But we won't stand in front of them to, to you know, to say, hey, don't go to work today having a shitty day, stay home, you know, or watch commander or somebody, but they're too afraid to send somebody home because they, you know, they're afraid they'll be frowned upon or they'll be stigmatized or they'll be looked at by the others in a room as being weak, right? But I'm here to tell you now, as a guy who's been on this job for 35 years and who's, you know, been fortunate enough and blessed to have attained the rank of captain to tell these people, you know, if you feel having a bad day, you got something going on at home, you didn't like that last call. You speak up. You know, speak up. Have, and it's you're not being. You know, it's not that you need balls to speak up. It's not that you have to worry about being stigmatized. It's the other people that are looking at you that are weak, that think that you shouldn't be talking about you know, yeah. this profession. Because I'll be the first to tell you, if I think I'm having a bad day because I can't deal with, you know, what I think I saw, I don't. You know, I don't want to be that one guy. Excuse me, I, I hope that I am that one person out there that found their son, you know, deceased from a firearm um, to say, like, if, if, if you can't handle it, speak up. Speak up. Yeah. You know, let, let my, you know, let my momentary, my moment of clarity come in and say to you, it, it's okay. Right? Yeah. If you, you know, speak up. That's why we're here today, Dave, as, um, you know, to be able to, to voice that, to say we as now advocates, right, for first responders mm-hmm. in all professions, fire, police, EMS, dispatch, um, to say we need to keep talking. Right. And mm-hmm. I've definitely, um, since losing Alex, um, have definitely 
gone into that area of, I'm not going to stop talking. You know, at the beginning, it was, I didn't, when people said, who's that boy on the wall? Like, who's that guy on the wall? I would say, well, that's my son. And I wouldn't say anything else. Mm -hmm. And like, a lot of shame at right. the beginning. And, um, and I realized, no. The only way that I'm going to make a change is by talking about it openly right. with no shame, right. and um, and keep on talking because that's the only way it's going to get better in departments. Right. Um, with the administration higher starting higher up down right. to the younger guys because right. the younger guys are do, are going to feed off what's been exactly. fed to them, right? Change starts at the top. It starts at the top, absolutely. And you don't need lip service. You know, talk is not lip service if it's genuine. Yeah. Anybody can go out and they can say whatever it is they want if they want somebody to hold a sign or get a vote for them or whatever it is that it is. But, you, you know, you don't need something to reach the higher echelon of society for it to become an epidemic or a pandemic. If somebody is affected by something and you see the need for change and it's affecting a lot of people in a certain group, it needs to be changed or it needs to be recognized for what it is. Not one person in this profession, this first responder profession, that is not affected by PTS, right? Post-traumatic right. stress. And I, I will take the D out of it because the more you say D for disorder, I think personally the more it's recognized as, or it's, it's stigmatized. So if you want to use the D, put it down as development, but don't label it as hmm. a disorder because it is only going to add to... Stigmatization of it, and it needs to be recognized on a legislative level for what it is, and have these families afforded the benefits of somebody who dies in the line of duty, and to have the disparity between a line of duty death, a suicide death, a death by medical reasons at a funeral looked upon as white gloves for this? Do we march for this? Do we show up at the casket? Do we not do an honor guard? If a person dies in the public service industry, they die in the public service industry and they need the recognition for the time that they served, not how they died. Yes, absolutely. Recognize them how they lived, not by how they died. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And, you know, going forward, you know, when you think about what you're doing in your department in Chelsea. Do you want to share with us a little bit about that, about the 988? There's a new resources, right? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, 988, I think is it's not unique to Chelsea. Um, you know, like all these other things I think of sometimes when I'm sitting there at my desk uh, counting the pencils on the whiteout that I count nowadays. Um, you know, I come up with these ideas, and 988 is a nationwide number, right, that came upon us due to the mental health influx of problems throughout the United States, right? Given the pandemic or whatever it is you want to call it that has led to the level of recognition in mental health. I'm sitting in my office and I said, well, if we're not just going to service first responders, let's service everybody because mental health affects everybody. So why not be the public billboard for 988? You know, who is more, more, who's more recognized out in the community because they're out in the street 24-7, police department, right? Yeah. Let's just put 988 on the cars. You know, you're driving around, you see 911, 
and there's a lot of talk given back and forth about who should respond, how they should respond, you know, whatever side of the alley you're on about, you know, mental health. Should a clinician respond? Should not a clinician respond? But the police are the most visible source of government out there 24-7, 365. Put 988 on the car, drive it around, let people see it. They may call, they may not call. They may, one person may call. You know that that pays dividends for if one person calls. So now we have um, a 988 campaign in the city of Chelsea, and I think we're probably maybe one of two in the country that has has done it on the police cars. Um, you know, so they labeled bilingual Spanish and English. We're predominantly a Hispanic city. Well, um, they're on all the cruises. We were fortunate enough to have the media company out front donate a billboard. LED billboard on Route 1, bilingual, 988. And now we just partnered with the DPW in the city, and they're going to pay for, um, I don't even know how many signs, probably upwards of 25 bilingual signs, street signs throughout the community. Um, you know, with the 988 logo, it's going to be in the parks, it's going to be on the entrance to the Tolman Bridge, it's going to be throughout the city, um, you know, just generally for people to walk by and see it. Everywhere. Uh, everywhere. And I had also heard this, a little unrelated to Chelsea, but I heard there was a bill that was sponsored um, at the State House for 988 to be included on every student um, in school on their IDs throughout, throughout oh, Massachusetts wow. as well. Uh, that's what I had heard. I hope the legislature sees it fit to, to get that bill passed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know they're really pressed with other issues, uh, but that would be feather in their cap if they could recognize the mental health, you know, at a younger level to have these kids grow up and have it ingrained in their minds, you know, from such a young age that, um, you know, there's, there's resources out there. Right. So Chelsea is the only one in the state? In the state? Chelsea is the only one that I know of right now that has started the 988. Um, I know a couple of the departments have reached out to me, um, you know, individually to see how to get it done. But it's basically a no-brainer. You get a 988 sticker and you slap it on whatever it is you want to slap it on. You put it on a fire truck, police car, DPW, truck, whatever it is you want to put on. The 988 stickers that we have um, has the Chelsea logo on it and it also has our son's ribbon um, you know, that we created in honor of, um, of our son to um, you know, have it recognized. Yeah. So did you spearhead this in your department? Um, yeah, spearhead, I guess it would be a loose loose term. I was sitting around my office one day and just said, hey, no, I'm, I'm going to do something else today, yeah. which is how I came up with the sticker. Um, and I just sat there one day and just said, hey, we're going to put 988. I'm tapping on the desk and Linda's tapping on my head <laughs> with the ambient background noise. Um, I said, yeah, I'm going to make these stickers. So I partnered up with a, um, a local company that I'm very friendly with. Linda made that noise in the microphone. <laughs> and we got those stickers made bilingual. Uh, that company is also the company that helped me with the ribbons, um, you know, the police ribbons. We also have the fire ribbons that we're going to make, uh, dispatch, EMS, military ribbons. Um, and those ribbons can be sold or they be made and sold and where? Where can we find them? Well, if you'd like to get a hold of us um, through Ma Riley's Cafe, uh, she has my digits. She can get a hold of me 24-7. Sample some of her delicious scones in the process. Um, and then, you know, we also came up with the uh, mental health Miranda as well. That, uh, Tell us about that. 
So the mental health Miranda is another thing that uh, I came up with again, sitting in my office. Uh, I, I do police work every now and then now, uh, <laughs> but this is one of the things that I came up that you know, we're passionate about doing to further the mental health cause. And you know, Miranda for cops is something that's that's taught to them in the academy, but mental health wasn't. So I came up with mental health Miranda. Have to probably look at my phone to read it verbatim, but basically Miranda is something that cops use 24 seven, and they read it to other people. Um, you know, it's their rights. You know, and Miranda obviously for cops that know about it is or cops that should know about it. It's you know you have the right to remain silent, but the law enforcement office of mental health Miranda is that you have the right to go on living. We can't afford you to remain silent. Anything you may or will say will be used to help you. You have the right to speak to anyone and to have them with you when you're needed. And you can decide to speak at any time you desire, and those conversations will help save your life. And it goes on to say, do you understand all those rights? And having those rights in mind, we ask you to reach out to anyone when you need to talk. And it has the 24-7-1-800 lifeline as well as a 988 number on it. It has an image of our badge, excuse me, our patch with uh, the ribbon that we created. And on the back of uh, these cards that we made, they're basically wallet-sized cards that are about the size of a license or a Miranda card that we should carry. And on the back it has uh, just a story about our son and the purpose as to why um, they were created. I um, have goosebumps. Over me or the card? The card. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, it's a powerful message. Um, you know, reading the rights, you do that every time you arrest someone. Right? Well, on TV. On TV. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but to have that and be able to pass that out to a young officer. Yeah. Or an old officer. Or an older officer. Yeah, who's been yeah. sitting around, you know, solid and... Um, yeah. Changing yeah. the way things are is what we say in law enforcement, right? <coughs> yeah. We don't like change and we don't like the way that things are. Yeah. But um, making change. Making change. Yeah. And that certainly is. Uh, man, I would love to see those in every officer's hand or first responder's hand. Mm -hmm. um, I'd for like them to see to them, them if we could. Like, I'd like to donate them if I could to every police station in Massachusetts and have a banner in the roll call room. You know what I mean? You go in there for roll call where they tell you about everything that happened in the shift prior. Well, you should go into roll call and the watch commander should ask if everybody in there is, you know, everybody good, everybody to go out in the street. Because if you're not able to go out in the street and help somebody else, you know, if you can't help yourself, you can't help somebody else, which is part of this whole new process that we have now at post, right? They expect yeah, cops yeah. to be of this new standard of training. And if their mental health is not good, everything else is going to suffer. Yeah. Right. So we have to make sure that our cops are well trained, and part of that training has to have occurred at the academy, with the premise of their mental health being of the utmost importance. Absolutely, abs abs totally, absolutely. I I agree with you. And uh, well, why don't we make that happen? Why don't we get that into every department and continue to work on um, that? I say we have a conversation with the chiefs and the mass chiefs, yeah. and, we, and we get that out there as part of, um, you know, the curriculum. And I'm fortunate enough to have spoken to somebody in the academy last week, and we're furthering that conversation this week. 
but that's what everything is, right? It's, it's conversations. Yes. Yeah. Right? It's, it's ongoing training. It's in-service training. It's it's roll call training, and it's riding around with your partner or talking in the station yeah. about you know how you feel. It's not going back 40 years to a choir practice after yeah. your shift when you went to the cemetery after your shift and you you know had a few social cocktails. That was our debrief session back then, right? That yeah. was our form of talking. Yeah. That wasn't recognized as us like letting off steam and like basically telling our peers that, hey, I had a shitty day. Is yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And I might need help. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And further on, and then them to be able to follow through with, follow up with you, mm-hmm. and at another time, mm-hmm. checking in. Right. That without, type of stuff. Without worrying about losing Without your worrying. Job. Yeah. Without worrying about losing your job or, mm-hmm. or being put on the desk. And, right. Right. All of that. And, and, and that's our purpose. So, so, Dave and Janice, if you were to give someone advice, if someone came to you, police officer, and said to you, I'm struggling, I'm having a hard time, what advice would you give them? Where would you, where would you direct them to? What would you do? Well, I mean, I would say I'm struggling struggling too because life is a struggle no matter what you know what vocation you have or you know what your socioeconomic background is life is a struggle right and we've seen it more so in the past five or seven years but Mm -hmm. as a law enforcement guy now if somebody came to me i would say exactly what's above your head you know the hashtag i will listen yeah i'll listen to them and i'll sit with them and you know i am not the you know i am not the psychological guru or I am not the mental health resource, but I'm a cop and I know what the struggle is. And I'll help you get to a place that I think will, will help you. And yeah. if that place doesn't, we'll find another place to yeah. help you. So the question was, if what, what advice would we give to, I would say as a, you know, as a parent, as a cop, I would say if you think you're asking your kids you know, tough questions, um, ask tougher questions. Yeah. Don't don't be afraid to probe. Don't be afraid to poke the bear. Um, you know, t- to the point where I've said things that you know, if if your child or your loved one or whomever um, hates you or think they hate you or you think they hate you, I would think that if you don't ask those tough questions and something happens, you you know you may th- you may hate yourself or you may hate the fact that you know, you, you didn't ask a question that you thought you should have. Janice is nodding, saying, yeah, I agree with him. So, guys, um, as a parent who, who lost a, a first responder also, um, we talked about a little bit about this before we came on air. Um, and I know it's hard to, to maybe possibly answer this. What do you do, do, if anything, for your own self-care now to make sure you're both okay? do um it's it's definitely a struggle if anything yeah no i mean it's it has been an uphill climb right which is a term that's used from a friend of ours who um in baton rouge louisiana that we've met you know through suicide they do an uphill climb um a race road race Um, it it's hard you know it's hard to get up some days and and do this do this thing called life, as Prince would say, right? Um, but you have to because 
you have to further the mission of your son, right, or your loved one. Yeah. Um, as far as self care is concerned, um, that that's hard too. You know, it's the the mental health impact and the the aftermath of grief and the cumulative grief that comes out of you know the loss of your son. You know, everything comes out. You know, um, you know the the day of our son's wake. My mother went into congestive heart failure, so she wasn't able to go to the wake. Um, and then after the loss of our son, uh, even though I was a bit estranged from my father, he died a year after him. My mother died a year after that. Her mother died a year later. My close work partner died a year after that. And then oh her my dad goodness. last year. So, um, you know, I guess you could say we are the poster children of grief. But if that's what it takes to have somebody else speak up and know that they're not alone, um, I think that's what gives us a little purpose and drive. We're very good at talking to other people yeah. and you know, imparting you know, our feelings and our thoughts and our emotions about different things, but it's hard to, it's hard to absorb it for ourselves uh, because it's still the shock of, of the why. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I do. And I, I think, you know, for myself personally, she may shake her head. Um, they say that most you know, relationships and marriages and couples fail after this. Um, but it's, 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 it's given us a stronger bond, or it's given me a stronger bond, you know, towards her. Um, and I think I may have a little bit of of her affection still <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's been hard but I know for a fact if I, d if I didn't have her by my side as bad as it's been um, it, w it would be worse it would yeah. be a lot worse yeah so you've been able to pull each other up when needed she it's definitely weird. pulls me up my bad days she'll help me up her bad days you know she'll call me um, so it's like it, like yin and yang like my bad day is, is not her bad day and vice versa, but yet, you know, collectively, you know, we'll have our meltdowns together, mm -hmm. but we're together. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to not. Yeah, so uh, you start to reverse the role of being the supporter, supporter. when needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. that's awesome. Absolutely. So we met each other. Can we talk a little bit about First Help, um, okay. Blue Help? Sure. So we met each other through First Help, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I know when we lost Alex, we did not know where to turn. Um, but meeting other parents, especially, I mean, with so many families out there um, on those family weekends that, you know, we were able to connect with. But meeting other parents and being in those rooms like therapy, they have therapy mm -hmm. rooms going on, and, which were amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, it was the first time of... I suppose letting myself grieve, mm -hmm. um, recognizing that I needed to do this, that I was doing unhealthy things, like really put myself into work and not and looking after my family rather than my own needs. Also, or what I needed to do for me, but getting the, having the support and the connection with other parents, so to speak, um, has been life changing. Mm -hmm. um, for myself and, and my husband. Um, 
as far as being able to make a connection without judgment. Mm-hmm. Like you get it, you totally, get it. Totally. And um, without questions. Without questions, you just get it. And that has been absolutely amazing. It has been an honor um, and a pleasure. Um, sometimes, especially when Dave is around. <laughs> It has been an honor and a pleasure um, of getting to know you too. Um, we've become friends um, even outside of First Help. Um, we make a connection, we, we go to dinner, and we've connected with other families, and we make it a business to, to text each other and check in with each other um, all the time. And uh, so out of tragic losses, um, something good has come out of us being able to support each other, um, even when we felt so alone um, for, the, for, the, for the time that we didn't know where to turn. Um, and I am so grateful um, to have met you both and got to know you so much better as individuals um, and as parents. And what a wonderful family you have. And I look forward to many years of friendship coming on. Most definitely. I mean, the, the, the realization is that, you know, even you're walking down the street with a complete stranger, you know, they have the same struggles. You know, yeah. They, they may look different or, you know, whatever. And I've come to realize in this job, too, that, um, you know, no matter how, how different I may have looked upon people, have been perceived to look upon people. You know, you wear the uniform for 8, 10, 12, 16 hours a day. I go home, I still have the same problems, yeah. same struggles, yeah. same issues as, as somebody who, you know, uh, who doesn't. So. So, today was a, um, I really appreciate that you came on here today. Um, it's a new podcast um, that, we're just getting up and running. Awesome. Again, part of the purpose of losing someone, especially in the first responder community. Um, I mean, sometimes I feel, what business have I been in this in this air, in this space? Um, but you know what? I don't really feel that anymore. I feel that there's in my heart, there's a need to speak. And um, if this is a way of being able to break the stigma for others, listeners, first responders who are listeners listening today, um, well, I hope it makes it easier for them to be able to go and seek help so that suicide is not an option ever again. And we can help one first responder um, through a tough time. We'll be honoring Alex, and I know you'll be honoring David. Um, so I thank you so much, Jay. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. <coughs> yeah, I, I pretty much uh, just consider it a privilege to be able to sit here and, and listen to you all discuss the, the losses that you've had as families and um, and the way that you've channeled that into, into purpose moving forward. Um, story about about coming to find your son as a first responder was was, was 
was, was very moving. Um, I was considering that the whole time, the rest of the time that we talked and thinking about, you know, even just the term first respond to how uh, it is descriptively appropriate, but it, it seems to overlook the natural truth that, that we're never really the first people on scene. That's the victims or those otherwise in need of help or services. And we always do get there as quick as we can. Uh, that's that's the culture, and it's it's one that, um, that I'm proud you know, to have worked in. Um, but when I listened to, to your vision and your description of change within that culture to somewhere where it's uh, more acceptable and appropriate for for uh, the men and women that serve their communities selflessly to reach out for help. I'm inspired by it. Uh, I, I, I do share that vision. Oh, I know you do. Yeah. yeah. You've, you've been um, an advocate for a while you know, you. in doing it, and, and you still are. You know, just because you don't wear the suit doesn't mean you still don't have you know, the purpose behind it. Trust me. You know? Well, thank you. Yeah, I certainly, I certainly feel it, and, uh, and I felt it you know, hearing, hearing you talk. And um, and just an absolute privilege to to meet with you and speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Same. Feel the same way about you. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dave and Dennis. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you everyone for listening today, and um, tune in for the next episode.